The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. I'm going to go ahead and just jump in today. Uh, I want to do two illustrations in my conclusion, so I'll just go quickly through the introduction. So uh, if you would, please open up to Jonah chapter 1. It's page 774 in your red Bible, page 1101 in the Children's Bible. Uh, I'm excited to get back into Jonah. It is an amazing book. It is an epic story of a prophet named Jonah, who the Lord called out of his comfort to go to the biggest, baddest city of the Assyrian Empire, to go to Nineveh. Jonah responds by fleeing from the presence of the Lord, by walking to a port city named Joppa and taking a boat to Tarshish, which is the opposite end of civilization. And so if God was calling Jonah to go this direction towards that speaker, Jonah went that direction towards that speaker. Jonah was running away from God as fast as possible and as far as possible, no matter what the expense was. And that's where we pick up today's story. Our text is verses 4 through 16. But we are going to start in verse 1. Cassie, could you put up the slide with the page numbers on it? Thank you. Page 774 in the Red Bible and 1101 in the Children's Bible. I know Jonah is not the easiest book of the Bible to find. And so uh, check the index. There's no shame in that. Um, But we're going to start Jonah and we'll start in verse 1. And we will read through verse 16 because I think verse 17 actually belongs in chapter 2. So, Jonah 1, verse 1 through 16. This is God's word. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest, a storm on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots. And the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? 
For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous, tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea that the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode harder to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Let's pray. Lord God, your word is always so timely. And we don't organize it that way, but God, by your providence, you bring these messages into our lives at the exact moment that we need to hear it, God. And so we come before your word today, trusting that you have something for us. God, we pray that you would go to work on our hearts, Lord, that you would reveal in us our rebellion and that you would soften our hearts, turn us to you and lead us in the way everlasting. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Imagine yourself being on the boat with Jonah and the sailors. It was no ordinary storm. It was the storm of the century. We read that the ship threatened to break up. Imagine yourselves standing there as you have these experienced sailors, men who know what it is to go against a raging storm, men who know how to handle it, men who know what to do. And you are standing on the boat and you are watching them freak out. You're watching them panic. You're watching them taking their treasure, their cargo, and throwing it overboard, crying out to their gods. Imagine yourself on that boat. How scary would it be to be on that boat in the midst of that storm? In today's passage, we're told that this great storm, this hurricane wasn't by chance. It wasn't by bad luck. It wasn't because of mother nature that this storm was sent by the Lord God. And it was a terrifying moment for all who were on board. It was probably the scariest, most desperate, most hopeless moment of their entire lives. And I'm sure they asked the question, Lord, why? Why have you sent this awful, terrifying storm into my life? Many of you ask that same question. I think all of us ask that question. Storms come into our life. And we ask the question, God, why didn't I make the team? God, why am I doing so poorly in school? God, why do I have chronic pain? God, why did my good friend abandon me and betray me? God, why 
Is my marriage such a wreck? God, why don't my parents understand? God, when will my kids finally obey? Why these storms? Why can't you just make life easy? Why can't it just be calm? God, why these storms? For some of us, this is a question of defiance and rebellion. We are questioning God's goodness and authority and sovereignty. And God, I don't deserve this. But for most of us, it is a genuine and honest question. We are asking, Lord, what is your purpose in this? How are you being glorified? What do you want to do in me in the midst of this storm? Most of you, I'm sure, have heard the phrase, every cloud has a silver lining. Which means that every bad situation, every cloud, every thunderstorm has some good aspect to it. And you have to look for it. And whatever that random difficult situation that you face, there is a positive result from it. But what if the storm is sent by God himself? If the storm is sent by God himself, then the storm doesn't just have a silver lining. The storm itself is an act of God's grace. It doesn't mean it's fun. It doesn't mean it's enjoyable. As a matter of fact, it might be excruciating and scary. But there is more than a silver lining to the storms that God puts into our life. God is in the storm. Can any of you relate? Can you relate to a storm in your life? I'm sure all of you could stand up here one after another and say, this is a storm that's going on in my life currently, or this is a storm that happened in the past year of my life. And it was horrible. It was scary. In today's passage, we're going to see two types of people on the boat, two types of people. And you're either one or the other. There is the sailors and there is the prophet. First, the sailors. The sailors are these religious men, as we will see. But they do not believe the Lord is the one true God. And then we see the prophet. The prophet is the one who knows the one true God, the Lord God, but is running from him in rebellion. And so we are going to look at those two things. If you look in your bulletins, the outline is different. It changes usually between Friday and Saturday. And so please follow along on the screen. And whether you identify with the sailor or identify with a prophet, what you will see is that sometimes God brings in storms of grace into your life. So first, let's look at God's storm of grace for the sailors. The sailors in this passage were not Israelites. They're far from Israelites, but they were still very religious men. Today, these men would say things like, I am a spiritual person. They believed in higher forces, higher powers. They believed in gods that were out there. But they did not believe that there was only one God, only one true God, the Lord God. And it's interesting, as we look through this passage, we can see their journey of faith through the subject of fear. And so I want to look through here and see how their fear progresses and matures throughout this passage. First, we see that the sailors fear the storm. Look in verse four with me. It says, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God 
And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Again, these were experienced sailors. These were sailors who had faced storms before, but they were being undone. They were doing everything they could simply to survive. They threw out their profit. They threw out their cargo. And yet the storm rages on, and so they cry out to their gods. They cry out to see, are any of your gods paying attention? Are any of your gods able to fix this? Do any of your gods even care? And so all of them cry out to their gods, but to no avail. And so they are afraid of the storm and they are afraid for their lives. And then we see their fear begins to mature. The sailors fear the Lord's power. Verse 7. They said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? Where is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. The Lord was the unique name of the God of Israel, Yahweh. He is the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. And then it says this, which is so fascinating. Then the men were not just afraid. They were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. The men set sail from Joppa. I'm sure they have heard of Israel's God, the Hebrew God, the Lord God. They had heard stories about how he sent plagues on Egypt, how he parted the Red Sea so that Israelites could pass through, how he closed the Red Sea on the Egyptian army. I'm sure they had heard stories about how God had come and cleared out the promised land for the people of God to come in. They had heard all of these stories of this great and powerful God. And maybe they thought it was fairy tales. But now they were experiencing his power firsthand. And they feared the power of God that was coming after Jonah. They feared the Lord. Because he was a great and powerful God. So the sailors fear the Lord's power. And then we see they fear the Lord's judgment. In their terror, terror. And their fear, they ask Jonah how they can save themselves. And Jonah tells them to throw him into the sea. And then we read in verse 13, it says, Nevertheless, the men rode hard. They ignored Jonah's command to throw him into the sea. It says literally that they dug in to get back to dry land. But they couldn't, for the, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Although they feared the Lord's power, they still tried to overpower him. And once they realized that their power, that their efforts, that their wisdom, that their cries for help were not enough, they finally resigned to the fact that they must throw Jonah overboard. And so in verse 14, they say this. They called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They knew Jonah belonged to the Lord God. They knew Jonah belonged to the Lord who was sending the great 
tempest upon the sea. They were afraid of his judgment for throwing in his prophet. And so they cry out to him. They have no other option. And so they throw Jonah into the raging sea. And in verse 15, we read, they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Again, could you imagine being there? Could you imagine being with these men, throwing Jonah into the sea, and immediately the raging storm stops. The sea is now quiet and peaceful and smooth. How did the sailors respond? Well, how could they have responded? They could have said, you know what? All right, we got rid of Jonah. We got rid of his God. Now we can be on our way. Or they could say, whew, we dodged that bullet. But that's not how they respond. What they respond with is a culmination of their fear, inappropriate fear, a fear of reverence and worship. Verse 16, the, then the men Feared the Lord exceedingly. This is a different fear. This is not a fear in the midst of the storm. This is not a fear in which they are afraid for their lives. This is a fear in the midst of the calm. This is a fear in the midst of peace and salvation and deliverance. What started out as a fear of the storm and a fear of the Lord's power and a fear of the Lord's judgment matured into a humble, reverential, worshipful fear. Of the Lord. Again, verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. It's amazing. These men who did not know the Lord God worships him as he tells his people to in his word. There's a there's a passage that closely relates to this in Second Kings 17 that's talking about how the people of God did not worship the Lord God and how he desired to be worshiped. You can follow along on the screen, but what you can see is these parallels of fearing the Lord and only the Lord alone, of of making offerings to the Lord and making vows to the Lord to obey him. 2 Kings 17.35, The Lord made a covenant with them, his people, and commanded them, You shall not fear other gods or bow yourselves to them or serve them or sacrifice to them. But you shall fear the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm. You shall bow yourself to him and to him you shall sacrifice. And the statutes and the rules and the laws and the commandments that he wrote for you, you shall always be careful to do. You shall not fear other gods and you shall not forget the Lord your God. And he will deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. The sailors cast aside their impotent created gods. They put aside all of their idols and they vowed themselves to the Lord and they worshiped him, not to be saved, but because they had been saved by the Lord God. You know, there are many, many, many religious mariners today, many religious sailors who would say, I am a spiritual person. Maybe that's you here today. You know, I believe there is a higher power. I believe there is a God that we can pray to. But please don't say there's only one God. That is too offensive. Because what you're saying is that everyone else is wrong. And it is offensive. But what we see here is the Lord demands our single devotion to him alone. 
You know, everybody cries out to God or to a God in the midst of the storm. But do you worship him in the calm? Maybe someone in your life is going through difficulty or sickness or pain, and maybe it's you and you say, I need to go to church. But do you worship him when things are good? Maybe you cry out to him with fervency and prayer when when you're not sure where you're going to get your next paycheck, but then when everything is good, you forget him and dismiss him. Tim Keller tells the story of a man in a military hospital who who had x-rays done and he received some horrible news. And in the midst of his deteriorating condition, he calls for the chaplain to come. And so the chaplain finally arrives and he gets to the man's bedside and the man sheepishly looks at him and says, oh, uh, I'm sorry, chaplain. Um, It just so happens they switched up my x-rays with somebody else. And um, I'm actually doing okay, so I really don't need your services. You see, so many times people are religious when life goes bad and they devote themselves to God when they need him. They treat him like the 911 number. They call him only in the case of emergencies, but they do not worship God. They merely use him to serve themselves. You know, one of the ways that we see this is when we barter with God or if you barter with God, if in the midst of the storm, if in the midst of the chaos, you say, God, save me. I will do anything as long as you get me out of this storm. But the problem is, God, the very thing God wants you to do is to not say, I will do anything if you get me out of this storm. God doesn't want to be bartered with. God wants your allegiance. He wants your worship. He wants you to say, God, whether I sink or swim, whether I live or die, where this storm passes or it continues for the rest of my life, whatever happens, I will worship you and I will serve you no matter what comes. That is what the Lord commands from us. He doesn't want us to barter with him. He wants us to worship him, and to trust him in the midst of the storm. Everybody cries out to a God in the midst of the storm, but do you worship, do you vow yourself, do you fear the God in the midst, in the peace of your salvation? If you are here, and you are like these sailors, and you have given your best efforts, and your best promises, and your best prayers, Don't you know that those can't save you? The only thing that can save you is when you look to God and you trust in God and you set your eyes on the greater Jonah who was plunged into the sea of God's wrath for you and for me. When Christ went to the cross, the darkness, the storm came over the land as he took on your sin and mine and suffered God's wrath on our behalf that we could experience peace. And so our response now is to worship, to vow ourselves to him, no matter what storm comes. Don't bargain with God. Trust him. Turn to him. Fear him. Worship him. Vow yourself to him. And so that is God's storm of grace for the sailors. Next, we see God's storm of grace for the prophets. Don't worry, there's only two main points. God's storm of grace for the prophet. In verse 9, Jonah makes a very, very interesting profession of faith. He says this. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, 
the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. This statement is so fascinating because on the one hand, this statement is so theologically spot on, right? It's so absolutely true. Intellectually, he knew that there was only one true God and that God is the Lord God and that he is the creator of the heavens and the earth and that he controls the sea. And so he was theologically precise, theologically correct. But on the other hand, he was lying out of his mouth. He said, I fear the Lord. What Jonah proclaims with his mouth, his actions proclaim the exact opposite. If Jonah feared the Lord, he would not run away from Nineveh, but he would have run to Nineveh. He would have obeyed the Lord. See, the problem with Jonah is the same thing that's a problem with you and with me. Jonah knows what is true in his head. He knows that the Lord is the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth. Jonah knows this in his head, but it has not captured his heart. It has not influenced his actions. Jonah's head and heart and hands are out of sync. They're running two, three different directions. He knows the truth intellectually, but he doesn't practice it in his life. And it's evidenced through Jonah's rebellion and running. Here in this passage, we see that God sends this storm of grace for Jonah to confront his rebellion, to undermine his rebellion. And we're going to look and see how he does this in three ways. First off, we see the storm forces the rebuke of Jonah. In the midst of the storms, the sailors cry out to their God. They hurl cargo overboard, but Jonah, (laughs) Jonah is asleep. And so the captain in a panic comes down and he utters this prophetic message that was from the captain, but most surely was also from the Lord. He says this, what do you mean you sleeper? Jonah was asleep. He was oblivious. He was so consumed with himself. He didn't understand that those around him were perishing. That applies to the Ninevites, that applies to the sailors. And so he says, arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give, us a th- will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Jonah was asleep at the wheel. He was unaware of what was going on around him. You see, while all of these pagan sailors cried out to their impotent, unpowerful, made-up gods. Jonah, the one who knew the one true God, the one who knew the God that controlled the seas, did nothing because he was running from God. He didn't want to talk to God. But what the Lord tells us through this captain is that even when we are running from God, we can still call out to him. This is such a great comfort to me. You know, like Jonah, I'm ashamed to say that I often lack the urgency for those who are perishing. I often do not fear the Lord and devout myself to the Lord and obey the Lord as he deserves. Just this past week, I decided to journal a little bit, and it has been a long time since I have journaled. And I simply wrote this. I said, Lord, I'm apathetic, which means indifferent. I'm having a hard time getting back into the swing of things after vacation. Lord, I don't understand my heart. I need your intervention. 
You know, I was confessing to the Lord that although I knew these truths intellectually in my head, I was asleep in the ship. And I needed him to awaken me from my slumber, slumber, that I was indifferent to the storms that was going on around me. Like Jonah, my life was a living contradiction. What I knew to be true theologically, I did not live out practically. And so let me ask you, where does your orthodoxy, your theology, your belief about God, what you know about God, what does, where does your orthodoxy not match your orthopraxy, how you live out your life. You know, many of you are at Jacob's Well. Many of you become members of Jacob's Well because you pride yourselves on being at a church where we teach the Bible, where we seek God's word, where we want to know God's word and memorize God's word and meditate on God's word. But where do you not practice God's word? Where is there a living contradiction in your life? The chasm between your head and your heart and your hands torments us. You know the Lord is God. And yet you don't submit to him with your whole life. You know the Lord has forgiven you and yet you are dealing and consumed with guilt. You know the Lord is sovereign over all of creation. That he loves you. That he is for you. That he is good. That he is in control of all things. And yet... You are burdened with anxiety. You know the Lord is compassionate and caring, and yet you are cold-hearted and selfish. You know the Lord loves the poor and the marginalized, and yet you find a way to get away from messy people. Do you see this disconnection? Would you commit to studying yourself, to going to the Lord and saying, Lord, where is there inconsistencies in my life? Inconsistently, inconsistencies between what I know and what I'm actually doing. You know, I'm so glad that even when we turn our back on God, God never turns his back on us. And he calls us in the midst of our running away from him to turn to him and to cry out to him and to call to him. And so would you go to him that you might know with your head, that you might cherish with your heart, and that you might practice with your hands the joy of your salvation. And so we see the storm leads to this rebuking of Jonah through this pagan captain. But we also see the storm leads to the uncovering of Jonah's rebellion. Verse 7, they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. The casting of lots, they're not exactly sure how it worked. It might have been like pulling straws and see who got the short straw or whatever it might be. But it's interesting in the ancient world, this is how they determine God's will a lot of the time. And the Lord doesn't condemn this practice. He actually encourages it many times throughout scripture. We even read in Proverbs 16, 33, that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so the decision of the Lord on that boat was that the lot would fall on Jonah. You could imagine the weight Jonah felt, the condemnation, the guilt as the finger of God and the finger of the sailors pointed at him and said, you are the one. You are the guilty one. You know, I know that we often don't think this way, but getting caught 
in our sin is a gift of God's grace. Having our sin uncovered brings it into the light that he might shine the glorious light of the gospel upon it and free us from our sin. When I was a kid, I grew up and behind my house, all along my neighborhood, there were woods. And we used to go back in the woods and play all the time. <clears throat> and one time, me and my buddy, we, we, built, the, we built this little fort. It was kind of like an igloo made of, of twigs, a wigwam or something. I'm not sure. But, um, but anyways, we built this fort made of twigs. And we thought, you know what would be cool? It would be cool if we, we had like a bonfire, you know. And, and like we, we, we roasted hot dogs and ate and stuff like that. And so... He had some stuff to do, so we both went back to our houses. I agreed to get the hot dogs and the lighter, and he was going to call me when he was ready. Well, he calls me up, and, um, and I knew that my mom would not want me to do this, so I was hiding it all from her. He calls me up, and my mom picks up the phone, and she yells up to me, Danny, don't ever call me that, Danny, phone call. And so I pick up the phone, and it's my buddy. And he says, hey, how's it going? He goes, you ready? I said, yep. I said, you got the lighter? Yep. You got the hot dogs? Yep. Okay. So then I put them into my deep pockets and I go downstairs and I'm walking out the door and I pass by my mother and she says, oh, where are you going? I said, well, I'm going to my friends. What is that in your pocket? I don't know what you mean. Pull that out. So I pull out the hot dogs. I pull out the lighter. The lot fell on me. I was guilty. It happens that my mom was actually still on the phone line when I was talking to my friend. You probably heard that moms have eyes in the back of their head, right? This is a gift of God's grace to catch us in our sin. You know, if it weren't for my mom, I probably wouldn't have eyebrows today. And so you see, God loves us too much to let us continue in our rebellion. He exposes, uncovers our sin that we might have freedom and, re- and victory and that he might reclaim our hearts to him. So we see that God uncovers Jonah's rebellion. And finally, the storm exposes the depth of Jonah's rebellion. Verse 11, it says, Then The sailor said to Jonah, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Now, what is the right answer to that? What could Jonah do to stop the sea from raging? Have you ever thought that question? What could he have said? Well, let's think. What caused the storm? What caused the storm was that God called Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. Jonah wanted to go someplace else. He wanted to go to Tarshish. And so he was fleeing to Tarshish. And so what would you do to stop the storm? Repent. Go to Nineveh. It's that easy. But what does Jonah say? Verse 12. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Jonah would have rather died than to obey the Lord. This is how deep Jonah's rebellion was. Jonah wanted to end his story. He wanted to end the story. But as you know, if you're familiar with the story, God does not let the story 
end. God will not forsake his purposes of redemption in the life of Jonah, in the life of the sailors, or in the life of the Ninevites. He will have his way. He will execute his grace and mercy. You know, have you ever wondered, why did God pick Jonah? You know, there were other prophets in Israel. There were other priests in Israel. There were other people in Israel. Why did God pick Jonah? Why didn't he pick someone who was more compliant, someone who would go? Surely he knew that Jonah would run. Surely he knew he would have to send a storm. Surely he knew the sailors would end up throwing Jonah into the sea. Why did God pick Jonah? And the answer is because God loved Jonah. God loved Jonah so much that he did not want to let Jonah remain in his rebellion and in his apathy. See, Jonah in Israel was so comfortable And he was so unaware of his relationship with God. He was so unaware of how rebellious he was, how distant he was from God. It took this calling of God, this storm of God to reveal his rebellion. God loved Jonah so much that God called Jonah to go to the Ninevites so God could expose his rebellion and break his rebellion and reclaim Jonah out of his stubborn apathetic, and lifeless heart. Many of you are familiar with the story of the prodigal son in the New Testament. It's a story of two sons, and the younger son comes to the father, and he asks him for his inheritance. Basically, what this is saying is, Dad, I don't care about you. I don't love you. I don't want you anymore. I don't want to submit to you. I want to go live my own life. I wish you were dead. And so the father gives the son his portion of the inheritance. Not because he didn't love him, but because the father loved his son so much that he would do anything to reclaim him. And so the son takes the money and he goes off and he squanders it on sinful pleasure. And in the midst of his desperation, when he is absolutely broke and there's a famine on the land, it says that he longed to eat pig food. Finally, his pride His rebellion was broken. And it says this in Luke 15. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. You see, what the father wanted more than money, what the father wanted more than his comfort or his son's comfort, what the father wanted more than anything was his son. He wanted his son's heart and he did anything for it. There's a preacher who said, if it was up to me, I would have ended Jonah in verse 3. You know what? I called Jonah. Jonah ran away. I'm moving on to the next person. But the good news is that when we run away from God, our story is never over. In fact, it could be the beginning of the story as it was for Jonah. No one can deter 
God from his plan of reclaiming his children. And God will send storms into our lives in order to break your rebellion and reclaim you for himself. And we will see that next week in Jonah chapter 2. Let me end with this. Let me end with two stories. First, a fairy tale. There's a fairy tale of a wicked witch who lives in the forest. And she, uh, and she would take travelers that were coming by, weary travelers, and she would feed them and she would give them a bed to sleep in. And she would say, stay here and rest. But the catch was, and they didn't know this, the catch was is that if they were asleep when it was dawn, when the sun rose, then they would turn into stone. And their heart would be alive and their soul would be alive and they would be aware of it, but they would turn to stone and she would put, her, put them out in her garden for all of eternity. Well, one day a young man comes and the witch gives him a big supper and she takes him to his bed. But prior to that, a servant girl met the man and she loved the man and she felt sorry for the man. And so before he went to bed, She threw stones and sticks and thorns into the mattress so that he couldn't sleep. Well, I don't know if you've ever woken up after a sleepless night, but you're not happy. And so he went to go walk out before dawn. And he looked at the servant girl and he grumbled and he shouts at her. And the servant girl looks at him and says, The misery you know now really bothers you because you cannot compare it to the misery your comfort would have bought. Can't you see? Those were stones of love I threw in there. You see, our enemy wants us to be comfortable. I know many times when storms come, we say Satan has sent this storm upon me. But the reality is, Satan wants us to be comfortable. Satan does not want us to know our desperate need for the Lord God. Satan does not want us to lean upon him. Satan does not want us to come to the end of ourselves and the end of our ropes and turn to the Lord God. Nobody here prays for storms. I don't think you do. Nobody wants storms in their life. They're scary. They are hurtful often. But don't you see that these storms are sticks and stones of God's love? It is a storm of his love. It's not that the suffering is good, but God uses it to shake us from our slumber and put us on our knees in dependence upon him. Chad and Bliss, I knew them before they went down to seminary. And after the first uh, semester of seminary, they came up and I knew, Trish and I knew they're poor seminary students, so we'll take them out to dinner. And so we took them out to dinner at the Olive Garden and and we asked them, we said, what's the best part of seminary? And and there's kind of a short answer. And then I said, what is the hardest part of seminary? And there was like this 10-minute lecture of how difficult things had been. And it wasn't really so much surrounding seminaries. It was health issues with their children. But it had been a very difficult and painful semester. Later, Chad sent me a song, and many of you have heard it. It's called Blessings by Laura Story. And it says this, and I think it's such a good summary of what God's teaching us here today. It says this, we pray for blessings. We pray for peace, comfort for family, protection while we sleep. We pray for healing, for prosperity. We pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering. And all the while, you hear each spoken need, yet love us way too much to give us lesser things. 
Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? What if my greatest disappointments or the aching of this life is the revealing of a greater thirst for this world this world can't satisfy? What if the trials of this life, the rain, the storm, the hard nights are your mercies in disguise? We have a God. We want a God. We need a God that loves us so much that he will send storms of grace into our life. Storms of mercy in disguise. Let's pray. Lord, as we think about this difficult subject of of turmoil in our lives, of storms, of suffering, there's a lot of questions that come to mind. God, what are you doing in this storm? What is your purpose? Lord, we confess that often our mind does not match with our hearts or with our hands. God, we pray that you would reveal to us the inconsistencies in our life, that we could be free in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.